Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today, and I am so excited to have two friends here whose work I so admire in both cases. Jamie Leeds, chef and owner of Hank's Oyster Bar, and a long time, we've just been talking, a long time participant in Share Our Strength Activities. Jamie, thrilled that you're here. Thank you. It's very, so. very nice to be here. Uh, and Bruce Leslie from First Focus and the Campaign for Children, probably one of the most effective advocates on behalf of kids, particularly vulnerable kids and kids that I think of as voiceless uh, in the city. Not necessarily a household name everywhere in America, but in Washington, D.C., if you're trying to get something done on behalf of children, uh, you go to Bruce Leslie. And um, our principal relationship is I retweet just about everything that you write because <laughs> I find it so critical to understanding what's going on in our dysfunctional government, as we were saying. So, Bruce, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Billy. Likewise, I, I, um, I, I think I retweet everything you write oh. as well and, and love all the work that you guys do. So thank you for all your um, outstanding work on behalf of kids um, in so many ways. So thank you. Well, uh, I want to begin by learning a little bit more about uh, how you both got to be doing what you're doing. Uh, Jamie, I think we have a connection in that you were very, uh, uh, your your initial work as a, as a chef was with Danny Meyer, at least early and formative in your career, but you weren't uh, really trained as a chef. No. So you must have been very good. I am a self-taught chef. I um, started working i actually was in advertising that's what i went to school for and um i worked a couple years in advertising as a copywriting assistant and i and i just didn't like that nine to five kind of atmosphere so i was looking around and i actually got fired from my job and i was going to take the summer off and collect unemployment it was i was in my early 20s and uh, my sister called me and said, hey, there's a job downstairs at the Popover Cafe. They need some They need some cooks. And I'm like, oh, I don't really want to. But okay, I have to make some money, I guess. Um, so I went down and I started working at the Popover Cafe on the uh, Upper West Side of New York City. And I just took to it like that. The guy, uh, the chef at the time, had just uh, graduated from the Culinary Institute, and he took me under his wing, and he taught me how to saute and grill and make sauces. And one thing led to another, and I thought, this is it. This is it for me. But at that point, this was in the mid-'80s, there weren't that many women chefs and that, not that many role models. And I thought, can I do this as a career? And um, one thing led to another, and I found myself working for Danny Meyer at Union Square Cafe, peeling potatoes, and working my way up through the stations. And he took me under his wing. and um, Which for many people would be the pinnacle of their career, and for you it was just a way station, it though, was the on beginning. your way to what it, you're doing. It was the beginning, yeah. But, but, but you must have had, so your, your, kind of your, your skills and your talent for cooking uh, it sounds like it was latent uh, even to you. I mean, it, you kind of became aware of it as you did it. It's not like you had set out to be a great chef. No, no. I mean, my father, who my restaurants are named after, Hank's Oyster Bar, my father um, instilled the love of food in me and cooking. He loved to cook. We cooked together. He passed away when I was young. And so, you know, I I had that part in me, but it didn't really come out until later. And and the creative, I always knew I wanted to be creative. I was very creative, and I wanted to be in a creative profession. Um, and so the 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 
the cooking aspect for me was my creative outlet. And you jump ahead today, and you've got six restaurants now. Yes, I'm working on the sixth one at the wharf. Which We're is opening be at the right wharf now. in the southwest Washington on the on the waterfront. On the water, yeah. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. Uh, and how many employees? Kind of what's the size? Of your well, business? I have uh, almost 300 employees now. Yep. And you know, when I first started, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a cook. You know, I just wanted to have my own little place. I, I came to D.C. as a consultant, and I saw opportunity here for neighborhood restaurants. There were hardly any neighborhood restaurants here. So I wanted to open my own little oyster bar. You know, every great city has its little gem of an oyster bar, and right, D.C. Right. hadn't had that yet. So, And I loved going to Pearl Oyster Bar in New York City. It was one of my favorite places to go to. So I thought, let's do this because my dad loves seafood and and um, I opened uh, on 17th and Q, the first one, 14 years ago, and I thought this was going to be it. I, ma- I wanted to make sure it was small enough so that I could do everything. I was working the fryer. I was expediting, shucking oysters. And then one thing, one opportunity led to another, and it, we just started to grow very organically. And now I have a corporate structure in place, and um, you know, there's, there are plans for us for growth. Yes. Okay. We're going to come back to that. Uh, Bruce, I think you and I started in kind of the same place. I started on Capitol Hill literally the day after I graduated from uh, college. I drove down here and started interning and then ultimately got a job as a legislative director and political director for Senator Gary Hart and then chief of staff to Bob Kerry. You worked in both the House uh, on both the House and the Senate side. Is that correct? Yeah. So I um, and I came here from state government. I had worked in uh, Texas. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and worked in state government, and then uh, came up here to Washington, worked in the House for a while, and then um, progressed and worked in the Senate. Who do you work for? So in the House, I worked for uh, Ron Coleman from Texas and Diana DeGette, and in the Senate, I worked for um, jo- Bob Graham from Florida and Jeff Bingaman from New Mexico. And so, and Good guys. Loved, yeah, all yep. great, great bosses. At, at some point, you must have made the decision that you could be, because you're, well, I'm going to have you describe what First Focus and the Campaign for Children does, but you must have made the decision that you could be more effective almost on the outside, creating some pressure on those inside than on staying on the inside of Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, um, I really did love working on the Hill, as I'm sure you did, and and it was a great experience, and I learned a ton about you know how how things work, but um, in that role, you're really, you can influence your boss and and maybe some other members on, you know, who your boss is allied with. But on the outside, I really feel like um, we can really weigh in with everybody in Congress, but also talk to people in the public. And uh, we have something in First Focus called um, the Children's Network. And so we have, try to get grassroots um, people from across the country, parents, pediatricians, um, early childhood advocates, people who work in child nutrition, um, juvenile justice, you know, lawyers, et cetera, to really work um, toward the betterment of kids, you know, uh, you know, writ large. And so, uh, and thinking about the whole child. So that's been, um, I've really enjoyed that. I've been doing that for about a decade now. And describe, First Focus is a nonprofit advocacy organization. Is that the best way to describe it? Or how should we understand it? Yeah, and, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's kind of priorities. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, the vision for First Focus, and I was not the first executive director, but was that um, there's really not sort of an AARP for kids, sort of a bipartisan voice for kids that sort of work on the full array of issues for kids. And so there was sort of seen as Children's Defense Fund on seen on the left and sort of focus on the family, 
which is kind of on the you know pretty far right, but nobody really who is doing bipartisan work for kids. And so on, on the cross, you know, doing uh, cross sector work on sort of the full array of kid issues. And so um, they were first focus was created to do that. And so our sort of motto is that we're our goal is to make children children and families a bigger priority at both the federal and state level and policy. And what would some of the top issues be that you work on? Um, so a couple of things that, that are huge issues for us are um, right now, for example, children's health issues. So yep. that's been a huge debate this year, and we are big proponents of protecting the Medicaid program. Um, when people think about Medicaid, I think they think of a lot of things, but they don't really realize that half of the enrollees in Medicaid are kids. Um, so and that's how many kids altogether? So it's 37 million kids across the country. 37 million wow. kids are that's enrolled fantastic. in Medicaid? 37 million. Wow. wow. And so like it's, and in some states. No, nobody knows that. Yeah, right? yeah right. no, absolutely. And, and in some states, it's, um, it's nearly half of all births um, or even more in, in a few states. And so um, it's just fundamentally important to, to, um, to kids and families um, that that program works. And then also the Children's Health Insurance Program, which sits on top of Medicaid and really uh, really covers sort of lower middle class working families, um, kids, and that serves another 8.9 million kids. Mm-hmm. And and um, and that's been a huge issue right now because um, one, there's Congress was really thinking about slashing Medicaid. There were the proposal in the Senate, for example, would have cut Medicaid by 31% for children. So um, you think about that, one in every three kids would lose their coverage um, that we were talking about or have their coverage really rationed in a profound way that would be really worse off for kids with pe- kids with disabilities. And then CHIP um, has 80% approval. That's the Child Health Insurance yes, Program. Yes, I'm sorry. Yep. Yep, the Children's Health Insurance Program. It, um, it has um, 80% approval ratings in Congress and yet, uh, I mean in the public, and yet Congress just let it expire on September 30th. And so it's just phenomenal. All right. I'm, I'm going to come back to you in a minute to ask why that happened and sure. how that could happen. Jamie, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me about having you here is that you're a great chef and restaurateur, obviously very successful, but you're kind of an activist as well. In fact, you were involved in some of Share Strength's very first events in New York, our, mm-hmm. our food and wine events. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also saw something that you did that I just thought was really cool, which was in February of this year, mm-hmm. um, you created at your restaurant uh, basically a policy that 1% of the bill is going to go towards uh, kind of a conglomerate of great causes, Planned right. Parenthood, ACLU, the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, what was the instant? Was that a reaction to Trump's election or just it, to the kind of the feeling well, of tumult of the times? Yes. I felt like, um, you know, when uh, w- what we did is we um, donated one percent of all of our sales for all of the restaurants. So at that time it was five five restaurants and uh, for 90 days because um, the government was doing a 90 day um, uh, a 90 day restriction oh, on, on immigration. On was immigration. That on immigration. Okay, so, so it was a, res- a direct response. It was a direct. To the it was a direct response right, to that. Right. And um, I just felt like we we needed to do something, and um, we ended up giving uh, quite a lot of money to. Um, we we split the money up into the four different groups: the Planned Parenthood. ACLU, um, 
NAACP. NAACP and um, I think Human Rights Campaign. Human Rights Campaign and the Human Rights Campaign because the Human Rights Campaign, they do a great event every year, Chefs for Equality, which is a very important event. Um, And um, I've been participating in that event also since the beginning as well. So um, I felt like it was, it's very important to give back. You know, I feel very fortunate in my um, profession and um, feel very, uh, very uh, passionate about giving back and making sure that people are taken care of. It seems like there's this tension between things that you can do individually, but that are small in impact and wanting to do things at a bigger scale, which only government can do, but government seems to be so broken. And what you were just talking about, uh, Bruce, the children's health insurance program, uh, the fact that it would, that Congress would let it die when everybody is for it and it's so desperately needed. What's going on behind the scenes there? How do we understand that, um, you know, it's not even like Democrats and Republicans disagree on that one, is it? Right. That's exactly right. What's the inside scoop? I just, you know, I think that Congress has sort of lost um, its way in terms of thinking about that really, first and foremost, their job is um, helping the American people and, and furthering the goals of, of um, the American public in, in whatever ways they need to do. And, and, of course, for kids, they are reliant upon adults to do what's right for them. And, and unfortunately, we're failing. And so um, even in a bill like this where there's, partisan, there's bipartisan support for um, extending it, um, they break down, and, and even in the House, there, it became a partisan vote on it over some of the pay-fors, and so how, how to basically um, find funding to pay for the extension of the children's health insurance program. So, And rather than them sitting down and just working it out, they both put out their proposals and then fight. And, um, and they have to both stick to the, kind of the party line. That's right. That's right. And, and, and there really is, there is common ground to be had there. Like, they're actually really close. But both sides sort of stake out the turf, and and I think that it's un- really unfortunate because it's it it does fail um, the country, and and um, I don't know. It's just it's just such a different environment than when I came up here. Like like you know that was the first modus is to think I want to get stuff done, so I am going to wor- immediately reach across the aisle and work with the other party to to come up with a common ground solution, and that's even how the children's health insurance program was created. And um, and we're just here. We are twenty years later, and they're just they're letting it fall apart. And it's it's not just that, right? It's it's over. It's the budget. It's the tax bill. It's the immigration issue. Um, you know, um, you know, the Trump basically is kicking. Um, you know, has eliminated the authority for Dreamers. So, kids who came to this country as uh, immigrant kids who came to this country as children to, to remain in the country and, and find a pathway to citizenship. He's basically ending all that in March and relying on Congress to come up with a solution. Well, there's a lot of us who now do not have a lot of faith that that's going to happen. And, and it's, it, it puts 800,000 kids at risk. Bruce, when you talk about the children that your campaign serves and that First Focus serves, uh, 800,000, what are you saying? Yeah, dreamers, dreamers. Dreamers. And then yeah. how many kids dependent on the child health insurance program? Um, 8.9 million. Okay, so when you think of those kids, can, can you kind of scratch beneath the, the policy uh, for a moment and give us a, and paint a little bit of a picture who they are, what their needs are, what, how, what kind of circumstances are they living in? 
Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I really love this, the conversation about uh, about the work you're doing because um, having grown up, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and, and, and what really, um, why I meant I think I do this is because um, in high school, I, I kind of became, it really became clear to me that half of the kids in our school didn't even have health insurance. And, and we had this, we had a couple of kids who were phenomenal athletes and, and couldn't play on school teams because they couldn't get a physical because they, their parents couldn't afford it. And, and I also knew a kid that had gotten cancer and passed away, you know, um, um, when I was in junior high. And so those kind of things, I just, they just, they were just so wrong. And, and these are, that's who we're talking about here. You know, we have in the healthcare issue, um, you got kids who have a full array of needs. And so they, it's everything from kids who, who are in need of eyeglasses so they can do better in school or have asthma and therefore missing a lot of school to kids with cancer who, who need, um, have enormous healthcare needs or, um, and one of the things that actually changed in the debate was Jimmy Kimmel like talked about his kid who had a heart condition. Um, but what's sad is it shouldn't take, you know, thank God for Jimmy Kimmel, but it shouldn't take Jimmy Kimmel. to. He's, to, he's got a platform bigger than yeah, all that, of ours put together. Yeah, that's right. right. So thank God that he raised that issue. But it's unfortunate that that's what it took. And, and in the case of the Dreamers, um, I mean, here's kids who have, you know, they know, other, they know of no other home than the United States. And they're passionate um, about... Um, their lives here and their family and the fact that we would put them at risk and, and their lives and um, it's just, you know, it just doesn't speak to who I think we are as a country or should be as a country. Um, and um, and I know people from uh, one of my best friends growing up uh, had a green card and, you know, uh, growing up and um, and became a citizen and he's doing amazing things. He works, you know, he works in the tech industry and does great things for this country. So um, I just don't understand why as a nation we would think that that's a good public policy to allow um, kids to languish or deport them to a country they don't really know. Um, They grew up and were raised here and we've actually invested in them and their future through school. Why would we then turn our back on them at this point? So it's it's the, it's what I love. Why I love doing what I'm doing because it's 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 really helping um, bring those issues to the fore. And I wish I had a platform like <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, we do the best we can. What what really strikes me is the whole hunger hunger issue overall in the United States. I was just recently involved with um, I'm involved with the James Beard Foundation, and um, they do this. They have this program called the James Beard Boot Camp. Yes. And it's for policy and change. And I just recently um, participated in one a few months ago. And um, and this is, you, you're kind of, you all get together for two or three days and go through it like training? Correct. We're, yeah. at, we're at Glendale Farms out in um, upstate New York. And there were 15 chefs from around the country, um, you know, decision makers. And um, it was three days of intensive um you know, uh, programs and um, information. And one thing that really struck me... And is it about how to, like, how to lobby, uh, how to elected lobby officials, senators, yes, and for, others? Yes, yep. for food waste. Okay. Food waste was the focus got on got this it, one. Got it, got it. And so, I mean, the, the statistics are astounding. I mean, it's 60% of Americans are going hungry, and we waste 40% of our food. So 
we have there's this thing called the ugly food movement. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, tell us. But so there's this there's this ugly ugly food movement that's going on, and it's really like because people don't want to buy a carrot that's all knobbed up, and but it's, it tastes perfectly it's fine, nutritious. And, yeah. You know. So what happens is the um, the farmers the the gro- the farmers you know are trying to sell this stuff, but the grocery stores don't want to buy it because they can in turn sell it to their customers. So there's kind of these back channels of these. There's some organizations that are selling the ugly food, uh, and people are buying it, and it, it tastes just as as good. And then there's also a third level of food that you know is on the shelves. It, it's called the the sell, so it's the sell by date. You know that every grocery store has a sell by date. Well, each state it's not mandated nationally. It's a state by state thing, right. and there are probably a dozen different ways to say sell by, it's use by, uh, best by, you know, and people at home are throwing away perfectly good food that is is edible and could still, and is still fresh. Yeah, in some cases for quite a long time after the date that's on the package. Yes, yeah. very long yeah. time. Um, I, you know, I also feel like it would be so important for Congress to hear from more business people <laughs> Uh-huh. Like yourself, you know, yeah. we always tend to think that, you know, business gets stereotyped often as being against some of these social changes because they'd be more expensive for business. And you must incur more expense by providing health care and some of the things you've talked about. Yeah. But for them to know that there are business leaders that are in favor of this, I think would be really, really important. Yeah. I wonder whether there's going to be a new generation of people that start to run for office. Do you see any of that? I mean, it feels like a lot of the political figures that we've seen in our leadership are versions of other political figures we've seen before. What's, what's your sense of like the next generation of leadership? I, I do. I do have a lot of hope. And, um, you know, it's interesting when we do some we do some polling on issues that are important to us on whether it's child nutrition or child health or immigration issues, whatever. Um, there used to be a huge this is it's been kind of interesting. There used to be a huge gender gap. So if you look at people over the age of 55 in this country and their support on any of these issues for children, um, there's probably a 30% higher likelihood that women support that issue than men. So um, we'll see like you know 85% support among women and then like 55 among men. But what we're beginning to see, and I attribute this completely to feminism because what has happened is men are now playing a bigger role. There's still not an equal role and should be more equal. Um, but are playing a bigger role in their kids' lives. And so you're now seeing that for um, what we're beginning to see is that under 35, there's actually no gender gap. So there's there's that same level of support among women, but there's also that support young, uh, among young men. And what we're seeing now is um, some of that translate in members of Congress. And so um, we, did, we did something called uh, Champions for Children at First Focus, and we do this analysis based on bill sponsorships and co-sponsorships and votes and whatever. And if members speak out on behalf of kids, then we, we assign them points. And on that point scale, um, the gender gap used to be three to one. A female member of Congress was three more t- times more likely to become a champion of children than men. Um, but now it's, it's, it's still a pr- pretty significant gap. Now it's about 2.6 times. But the reason why it's actually narrowing a little bit is because of these younger men. So there's there's people like Beto O'Rourke who's running actually against Ted Cruz mm-hmm. for Senate. 
Um, and he's got young kids. And so he gets it. Like, and, and so he, he calls us and says, hey, what do we need to be doing for kids? And then there's like the Castro brothers in San Antonio who um, have young kids and same, same kind of thing. And so there's becoming, I think, uh, a new generation of legislators who absolutely are more into trying to do what's right by families. Jamie, what do your customers and guests um, expect of you? I'm assuming that first and foremost, they expect to come in and have a great meal <laughs> at yeah. a price that they can afford. Right. Uh, and then they might find that 1% is going to a cause and that might delight them. But um, do they have an expectation? Do you want them to have an expectation that it's about more than just the dining experience? Absolutely. And, and I was just um, reminded that um, I was... Uh, approached by a young woman. Her name's uh, Gina Ortiz-Jones, and she was here living in D.C., and um, she she's from Texas, and she felt so compelled to do something that she moved back to Texas to run for Congress. And so we did a fundraiser for her, and um, she's um, focused on LGBT issues um but i'm just was talking to the you know talking about the the next generation of leaders i think that there's a lot of um people that are compelled to do something and this is just one example of someone that's you know actually changing her whole life and going back to where she was from to do that but yes i think you know people know hanks as a um, a company that you know cares for the community, we are neighborhood restaurants. We're community driven, and um, we do a lot of fundraisers. I mean, um, last year we gave over thirty thousand um, dollars in um, benefits fundraisers. So it's uh, it's definitely people um, appreciate that. Uh, what comes next for both of you? You've got six restaurants. Are there going to be 16 someday? I've or got, are you going to be outside of the, the district and um, and Virginia? Where it's are you it's possible. Oh, it's yes. very possible. Okay. Yeah, right. I have a couple of things on the back burner that um, are, are brewing. But, uh, you know, it takes a lot out of you to open a restaurant. And um, uh, so we're going to get through the wharf. We're going to get the wharf open and get that stable and then we'll uh, put our heads together and see what's next. But we are on a trajectory to grow. There's yeah. no question. You're not done yet. No. No. How about Bruce? What's next for uh, First Focus? Um, that's, that's a really great question. I think that um, one thing we are trying to do is sort of um, build sort of this grassroots um, movement. So sort of through our children's network and through social media um, to advocate for kids. But And then from a personal standpoint, um, I've got two kids in college and two Seniors in high school, so um, I've been thinking about sort of once I'm an empty. Oh, you're not going to be retiring. You're not going to be retiring. No, anytime, so, I no. won't be re- retiring. But as an empty nester, what can I also do with my free time? And and I have a huge passion for basketball. And so mm-hmm. one of the things I'm um, I started doing is I'm uh, assistant coaching for a high school basketball team in the area, and I just love it. It's it's uh, love working with the kids, and it's just so much fun. And um, so. That's that, great. That's, yeah. I'm really looking forward to doing even more of that. Last thing, for, for those who are listening who are really inspired to get more involved in the community, whether they're business people, whether they're political, whether they're citizens, uh, what advice do you have? What's the best way to do it? What's the most effective 
way that people can make a difference. Come eat at Hank's. Come eat at Hank's. That's a good way. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say? Because we, you know, we then in turn, you know, give back. Yeah. So. Well, and that money is the fuel for a lot of social change. It is. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say, Bruce? I I think um, I think whether um, you pick your issue or your cause and and really hook up with that nonprofit or group that's that's um, engaging them that work and. I think it does um, give people a sense of community as well. Um, I, I even like going to to uh, being a member of the community that goes that that you know foodies who care about um, certain issues and stuff. I think that it really does give you um, it has some payback because you feel like you're giving to the community in some way, um, but it also gives you a community itself because. Um, um, like my wa- my daughter's really interested in in the environmental issues, and so. Um, she's formed some groups there at the University of Maryland. She's in college there, and um, she's a part of them. And um, I think she loves it because not only is she working on the issues she cares about, but then she finds common friends who um, who I think will be lifelong friends who care about the same issues she does. And so she feels like she's also having an impact. But so I, I, th- I think there's you know it's a win win to to get involved in certain ways. Um, and uh, my mom's retired, and, and she just formed a, a nonprofit called Texas Kids Can't Wait. And it's all about public school advocacy. And so, um, and she's on, tw- you know, she's 77 years old and just like killing it on Twitter. You know, she's like, <laughs> and Facebook, it's unbelievable. I'm like, you know, and I call her every now and then, like, her Facebook page actually has more followers than ours does. And I'm like, what are we doing wrong? You know, so I'm getting the advice from my 77 year old uh, mom about how to how to do Facebook better um, in terms of advocacy. So it's great. Well, you clearly both come by the work. Honestly, your mom in a similar line of work um, in some ways following you in some ways leading. And of course, your your dad, Hank, for which the restaurants are named, who gave you your your love of food. Um Thank you so much for being with us, oh, Jamie Lee. Hank's Oyster Bar, Hank's Pasta Bar, bar also. And, um, and Hank's Cocktail Bar. Hank's Cocktail Bar. You've got your choice of six in the D.C. area and maybe a broader choice soon. Uh, Jamie, awesome. thanks for being with us. Thank you. And Bruce Leslie from First Focus, thanks for the incredible work you do representing kids all across this country. And as one of, as I say, one of the few because kids don't vote, they don't have PACs, they don't make campaign contributions, they don't have lobbyists, but they've got... Bruce Leslie on First Focus. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you all the work that you guys do. I, I admire and respect and have learned so much from you guys on the work you do. So and, and the leadership you provide in, in the whole area of nutrition and um, hunger. So thank you. Thanks. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.